This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and be careful on your commute home. It is a bit uh, wet and slushy out there with uh, some uh, wet snow falling, so at least in the metro region, so please be careful if you're out and about on the roads. Well, for the third year in a row, life expectancy at birth uh, for Canadians fell from 81.6 years in 2021 to 81.3 years in 2022. That's according to Statistics Canada. Those uh, new stats were released last week from 2021 to 2022. Life expectancy at birth declined in Newfoundland and Labrador as well. Cancer and heart disease remain the two leading causes Causes of death in Canada, accounting for 41.8% of deaths in 2022. But COVID also played a significant role. Well, here to discuss those statistics as they relate to Newfoundland and Labrador is Deputy Minister of Health Transformation, Dr. Pat Parfrey. Well, Dr. Pat Parfrey, uh, the latest uh, statistics are out now on life expectancy across Canada. How does Newfoundland and Labrador compare to uh, the rest of the country? So before the COVID-19 epidemic came into effect, our life expectancy was just over two years lower than the rest of Canada. Our life expectancy for men and women was about 80 years, and uh, for Canada, it was more than that. And then COVID kicked in, and our life expectancy dropped by 0.3 years in in 2020, and by another 0.3 in 2021, and by another 0.56 in 2022. Um, and uh, it, it seems as, and, and, and within Canada, you had similar drops in life expectancy. We, we were a bit higher than Canada. So our differences between us and Canada now for life expectancy is 2.5 years. Um, let me just tell you, it, it, this is, some of this is a bit technical, but the way life expectancy is calculated is calculated by the number of deaths that occur, but also by the age at which those deaths occur. And then when you analyze the changes, you're able to kind of work out what you think has influenced the, um, the, what mortality influenced the life expectancy. Um, so for if, for it, se- it seems as if it's directly related to COVID-19, both in the diagnosed cases that have occurred, but also probably in the fact that there were undiagnosed cases of, uh, as well that affected mortality. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the more recent interpretation. But probably the piece that's of most importance is that um, without COVID, our life expectancy is still less than Canada, and that's driven by uh, the death rates from chronic diseases like cardiac disease and stroke and cancer. And those things are directly related to healthy living and the social determinants of health. Were you surprised to see that uh, COVID had such a, a great influencing factor here? Um, I, to some extent, I was. Um, now, I think that it's probably reasonable to think that Canada did a, had a much better outcome from COVID than the United States, for instance, where the life expectancy dropped by over 2.4 years. And, uh, and uh, in the last year, it's, it's improved by 1.1. So Canada's 
um, dr- mortality in relation to COVID-19 uh, was less than less than that, driven almost certainly by our vaccination policies, etc. Uh, we were certainly very strong in, in terms of our vaccination um, um, rates, etc. But Omicron came in and uh, infected more people and probably influenced the mortality greater than we than we anticipated. I think one of the other things we were concerned about was that because of the um, kind of lockdown with the pandemic, was that was that uh, causing more deaths from stroke and cardiac disease and cancer because we weren't able to get the treatment to them? And that doesn't appear to have been the, been the case. What is of greatest concern to you when you see the uh, life expectancy and, and the influencing factors there? Well, I think that the, the key pieces for us are um, how do we decrease the mortality rates for chronic diseases like cardiac disease and stroke and cancer? And uh, it, that, that, that's a combination of being able to live more healthily um, around uh, less smoking, less, less alcohol, more exercise, eating better, um, uh, more activity, th- those types of things. And they're kind of personal responsibilities. But it's also driven by... Uh, poverty and the incapacity to be able to afford to buy the foods that you should eat and to be able to participate in society appropriately. Um, And those types of um, uh, groups of people that are excluded from society in various ways, Indigenous nations, for instance, um, their health outcomes are worse than the general population. And we have a kind of a, a... a moral obligation to be able to try and improve the social determinants of health. So do remote communities have uh, much of an impact here when we, we consider, you know, access to health care? Um, it, it, well, certainly access to health care is an issue for remote communities, that's for sure. But I think that the the biggest thing for the Indigenous nations is is the realities around um, uh, the the fact that they're they're poorer, um, and that they that they're uh, been disadvantaged for many years, and that it's known that their health outcomes are worse than the general population, and the efforts that are being made around reconciliation and trying to improve social factors and improve healthcare uh, for the indigenous nations actually really important. So how do we address that? I know we've introduced this uh, virtual uh, care uh, program for over the next uh, two years to address some of the, the gaps in health care, especially in remote communities. But, you know, how do we address that in the long term? So now you're, you're, you've immediately gone into the health care story, and it's, it's in fact the social factors that influence health is probably the most important. But to answer your question, um, the key things here are to improve community care through family care teams would be one big thing. To be able to use virtual care in a more in a in a in a more focused fashion, and to be able to consider virtual care first as the optimal thing to be able to do for isolated communities. To provide more diagnostic resources within those communities, um, and and. Uh, to be able to ensure that they're not excluded from from healthcare in whatever way you think about it, um, all all those things are necessary um, to be able to provide care that's equitable for everybody. 
When it comes to um, life expectancy, uh, are there trends here that uh, uh, worry you or encourage you? And, and, you know, how can we predict what, what's going to happen, especially when um, things are changing so rapidly, especially when, we, uh, when it comes to uh, our demographics, our aging population, uh, greater immigration, um, uh, health, um, mental health and addictions, those kinds of factors? Right. So I think the the piece that worry that worries people is what happened in the United States with the opioid overdose. That had a major effect on on, on life expectancy, and uh, the, the, those the those opioid deaths um, have they they have a, are occurring more frequently out west in particular. And it seems that that issue is moving moving east. There's no indication yet that that has influenced life expectancy to any extent here. Um, however. It's a concern for obviously that we be able to um, um, deal with that in an appropriate manner through better me- me- medical care and better addictions therapy, etc. Um, the piece that's um, really the important piece, I think, is is that we we do need to intervene more in improving social factors, um, and we do need to um, ensure that access to care is equitable. Um, and uh, I think that those efforts are being undertaken at the present moment. Well, Dr. Yeah. Pat Parfrey, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Linda. And Dr. Pat Parfrey is the Deputy Minister of Health Transformation. He's also uh, one of the uh, creators of the NL Health Accord, which uh, we are seeing um, being implemented, um, various elements of it uh, throughout the province. Well, coming up, Petrocan returns to Newfoundland and Labrador with a little celebration in St. John's this morning. This is News Talk on VOCM. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at vocmcares.com. And we're back. Well, it's been a long time since Newfoundlanders and Labradorians gassed up at the red and white pumps, but after a lengthy absence, Petro Canada officially opened gas bars in the province this morning. North Atlantic merged with Suncor earlier this year with a deal that would see some of the uh, 110 North Atlantic gas stations in Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia and PEI switched to the Petrocan brand. The ribbon was cut on Petrocanada's revamped Kelsey Drive location today, one of four in the metro area. Here's what David Button, president of North Sun Energy, had to say. So for us, this is truly an exciting time. This is a milestone for North Sun Energy, uh, so which is actually the uh, co-ownership between North Atlantic, which uh, we're the you know, leading re- retail fuel brand in Newfoundland, and Suncor, the uh, leading retail, retail fuel brand across Canada. Uh, so we, you know, we joined, uh, I guess, March 1st. It seems like a long time ago, but uh, we've done a lot, I guess, as you can see in the last, uh, I guess, eight months to get to where we are today of the, of the opening of these sites. So if you look at, you know, anyone who's been around the city, we've, you've seen signage, I guess, being changed. Over the last couple of weeks, we've, uh, uh, we've been doing a lot of work around, you know, signage has been being installed. But this is actually the, the actual opening or grand opening of the four uh, Petrocanna stations in, in Newfoundland. So in addition to where we are today, Kelsey Drive, we uh, have a location, 340 Torbay Road, uh, 694 Water Street, and 986 Kenmount Road which we call Crossroads, it's in, this, in the, I guess, the town of Paradise uh, locations. Um, 
so I guess at the heart of this partnership is uh, is Orange Store, and you'll you'll see kind of you know behind us a lot of things blended together. Uh, but Orange Store is one of the things that's going to be consistent between you know North Atlantic and Petro Canada. Um, you know, Orange Store, which you know started in, t- in 2008, um, and you know we've been very proud of what we've done, and we've uh, uh, you know we think we've we've we have very clean facilities, uh, great staff, uh, you know Cafe Orange, a lot of different programs. So it was very important for us to keep that as part of this this partnership. Uh, so Orange Store will continue. Uh, so our compu- you know our customers that you know can continue to depend on us day in and day out uh, for the services that they've they've seen for the last uh, you know 10, 10 plus years. One exciting thing, I guess, uh, starting now is is the Petro Canada bringing Petro Canada back to Newfoundland is the introduction, or I guess, a reintroduction of the Petro Points program. So customers at our, at our uh, four branded Petro Canada stations will start to uh, earn and redeem Petro Points on gas, snacks, and other things like that, as well as the strong partnership with RBC. I mentioned Brent is here today, uh, so there's a uh, a really good pr- program in place, a partnership between Petro Canada and RBC. Um, so you actually get three cents a liter when using an RBC card uh, at Petro Canada. Uh, in addition to that, if you uh, uh, if you link your cards, once you link your cards, you get 20% more Petro points. And uh, if you're an Avion card holder, you get 20, 20% more uh, Avion points, which is which is huge. Um, one thing I want to talk about is is uh, yay is our you know North Lang's loyalty program uh, yay rewards will, will remain. Um, we have a transition period at four of these sites, but you know we just want to make sure everyone's aware that yay is here to stay. We uh, customers can still continue to to earn and redeem uh, yay rewards at you know 51 other I guess North Atlantic Orange Store locations across the uh, across the province, which is which is key. So if we look at this partnership and go ahead, kind of you know w- you know where we were and where we are I guess moving forward right now, Northstone Energy has 100. 10 uh, retail locations in uh, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, which we are, you know, we're looking to really grow that, and that's when one of the great things about this partnership is our growth objectives were really aligned, uh, so both both parties want to, to continue to grow that uh, business. Uh, and part of that expansion, we're very thrilled to announce that in starting in 2024, we'll actually be introducing Orange Store to, to Nova Scotia and several sites, which is uh, which is great. I just want to thank everyone to uh, be involved in the uh, in making this project reality. Obviously, the on staff, uh, franchisees that have worked very, very hard uh, through the transition because everyone knows anytime you integrate, anytime you change, there's always challenges, and, and, and that's, that's par for the course, I think, with everything we do. Um, I want to thank the contractors, obviously, who worked uh, through different conditions, high winds, late nights, all that kind of stuff to get the signage done. I uh, really appreciate that. I guess to, to everyone at both the Petrocan and North Atlantic, North Sun teams uh, who worked hard together uh, to make make this a reality, we really appreciate that. And I guess finally, you know, more, most importantly to our customers who every day uh, support us and, and uh, you know, also support us through this change. So I uh, really appreciate that and thank you very much. Yeah, so they had quite the do down at the uh, Petro Canada on Kelsey Drive today. VOCM's Richard Duggan was telling us a little bit about it. They even rolled out the red carpet and had the local town crier there, and uh, all kinds of things. So uh, celebrating the um, uh, return of Petro Canada or the Petro Canada brand to Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, some of those uh, former uh, North Atlantic locations, not all, but some uh, are switching over to the red and white uh, Petro Can brand, and you may 
may have noticed it in your neighborhood. Uh, so that's what's going on there. Well, Newfoundland and Labrador's latest Rhodes Scholar is off to Oxford University in the ne- next year. Catherine Dimon is working on a Memorial University research project examining the correlation between plastic exposure and placental function. And she joins me now. Congratulations. Thank you. So what's it like to be Newfoundland and Labrador's latest Rhodes Scholar? Uh, It's an incredible honor. I mean, I get to join a network of scholars from all over the world um, that truly are the best of the best. It's a really exciting time. So tell us a a little bit about what this means for your research in particular and, and what your research is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I've been involved with um, a research group at Memorial University in the Department of Chemistry, uh, led by Dr. Lindsay Cahill, and then uh, worked with uh, key researchers across Canada uh, looking at impacts on pregnancy. Um, The ability to go to Oxford allows me to study in in an international context and allows me to uh, really engage with leading researchers in this area. So what specifically are you looking at when it comes to uh, plastics and the impact on pregnancy? Yeah, so I completed my undergraduate honors research under under the supervision of Dr. Lindsay Cahill, and we looked at the impact of maternal exposure to nano and microplastics and the impact on placental function. Uh, which was interesting. It's a, it's a very practical way to apply your studies, right? Um, so we sit in class and we learn lots of different techniques, but it's nice to be able to uh, put those into practice and to learn really about the work that's going on at your university. So what are you finding? Yeah, lots of lots of results. Um, pretty scary things. It's definitely something for us to keep an eye on and to um, be wary of in the future. So how is this exposure occurring just through, um, you know, what we drink, what we eat, uh, the things that we're handling, the things that we're breathing in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, plastics are everywhere, as we know. Our, um, our world revolves around them and they're ubiquitous in our environment. Um, so they're, they're essentially all around us. So what kind of an impact are they having on uh, things like fertility and, and pregnancy? Uh, yeah, so that research is ongoing, um, so there's lots um, that will be published in the near future. Um, I can't speak about them right now, but um, there's there's lots of uh, impacts, and it's definitely something that's important in the research, that, and the research that's happening is really um, necessary and worthy. Absolutely, and it, and it's something that a lot of us have been, you know, uh, concerned about, and I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, this type of topic uh, uh, broached. So when can we expect to hear more? Yeah, so there's um, lots online published at a university. Um, There's researchers across Canada looking at environmental exposures um, on all areas and aspects of life. And what do you hope to get from this experience of uh, now studying at Oxford? Yeah, well, I'm really, really excited to join a a world-class of scholars. It's truly the dream to be able to Uh, work with and learn from not only the scholars in my cohort, but leading researchers over there. Um, And to be able to take this on on an international level, learn about um, their uh, research methods and about schooling over there. Well, Catherine, you're part of an elite group now. I really appreciate your time and congratulations. Thank you so much, Linda.
And Catherine uh, Dibbon is uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's latest Rhodes Scholar. So congratulations to her. Well, a spokesperson for France's Civil Aviation Safety Agency says a small twin-engine plane was forced to make an emergency landing in the southern Paris suburbs. French media said the aircraft landed near a populated area in the town of Villejuif. On Monday, the communications director for the safety agency known as BIA for short says the cause of the unplanned landing was a technical problem and that four people were on board the plane including the pilot he couldn't confirm french media reports saying that three passengers suffered injuries but said that his agency was investigating what led up to the emergency landing and that is a uh, fear of a lot of people especially in uh, small aircraft in um, and we've seen these kinds of things from time to time it's not very frequent but from time to time uh, a small aircraft has to make an emergency landing and has to pick a place, a safe place to do it. And uh, one would think that the southern Paris suburbs are a very tricky place in which to do that. Anyway, hopefully no um, very serious injuries there or anything worse. Uh, And we'll be watching that for further information as uh, the time goes along. It is a messy one out there. We're going to get a full rundown of the road conditions uh, right after the news with VOCM's Noah Shepard. But in the meantime, it is a bit slick and slippery and touchy on the brakes. So please be careful. Keep your speeds down. You're not in a rush to go anywhere, are you? Uh, So uh, keep that in mind and uh, you'll get home safe and sound. Get home to where you are going. Uh, We're going to take a news break just a little tad early so uh, Noah I knows you're out there (laughs) get ready um, for news and when we come back um, the province and Quebec both interested in developing the Gull Island Hydro project but a veteran Innu Nation land claims negotiator says think again uh, if about another hydro development if serious concerns developing the impact uh, surrounding the impact benefits agreement I'm sorry on Muskrat Falls aren't addressed this is news talk on VOCN Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. And we're back. And uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan just handed this to me. There is a big announcement coming about what's being called a major international curling event coming to St. John's in 2024. The announcement is uh, coming on Wednesday, December 6th at 10 a.m. at the Mary Brown Center here in St. John's. The announcement will unveil details about the curling event, including ticket and sponsorship updates, community participation, and more. The event will feature Remarks by Steve Crocker, the Minister of Tourism, Culture, Arts and Recreation, Mayor of St. John's, Danny Breen, of course, and Olympic gold medalist Brad Guju, plus Sarah. Additional remarks from local committee representatives and Sportsnet. Wow. Okay, that sounds like something either... Okay, Sportsnet wouldn't rule out a briar because that's TSN. So Sportsnet, to me, is signaling Grand Slam. And we all heard about the trouble with Grand Slam last year, did we not? Or like just recently? 
That was a different uh, oh, tournament that, in Kelowna that, that Brad was Guju different. Yes. had uh, raised some points. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was, but it was not a Grand Slam. Okay. The Grand Slam was like up. last week, wasn't it? There's a bunch of Grand Slams, <laughs> but there's one coming up on the 12th. Uh, Brad's going to that one. It's in Saskatoon. Okay. Uh, so what, what are your spotty senses telling you? I'm thinking it's a Grand Slam. Uh, I'm shocked it took this long, honestly, because the Briar was very successful here. What was that, 2017? Oh, um, and it coincided with that massive windstorm we yes. had, remember? It was just like a hurricane. It was the strongest wind I think I've ever, I've ever experienced. Yeah, and I remember watching it. Seven years ago? It was, it's been quite a while. I had a puppy at the time, and she's a seven-year-old now, so. <laughs> and I, Brad won it, and it was on wheels. I think it was some of the best attendance they've had at, say, Briar. Hugely yeah, it was popular. And the players, if you recall, Sarah, at the time, were really taken aback because curlers are not used to people in the stands going woo mm -hmm. they're usually like a tame and quiet yeah, group, but we right? had a very enthusiastic mm -hmm. um audience for the briar especially after uh, team guju ended up winning the briar the celebration after was pretty big so the grand slam is international the grand slam no Ooh. yeah it's Ooh. international that's okay, what i'm that, wondering Ooh. now that's big yeah so but it wouldn't, Briar's not interesting. Hmm. Ha -ha. Now you've got me thinking. I got this the curler, my mind. the curling fan thinking. I don't know much about curling. I just know the the absolute fundamental basics. The last few rocks is when everything starts to get exciting. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know anything about the structure or the, the competitions or anything like that. I don't follow it per se. I follow it when there's big things happening, like Torino. I was all part of that, you know. I was two years old. There you go. Um, <laughs> and I was working here. Um, so <laughs> I remember all of that. Uh, but uh, in terms of, like, what an international... Anyway, maybe some curlers are out there and tell us exactly what they yeah, think. Yeah, if you welcome. have any ideas, give us a call. I yeah, want to know. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, back to a, a, a separate topic now. A senior land claims negotiator with the Innu Nation says the provincial government can forget about Gull Island if outstanding issues related to Muskrat Falls are not addressed. Here's the second half of a lengthy conversation I had with Peter Panashway last week. You've been involved in land claims <laughs> as long as I can remember, as long as you can remember, I'm sure. Yeah. And you just mentioned it's a, it's a process that's taken 30 years. Um, yeah. So where are you with that now, and, and why is it taking so long? Is that how long it takes to settle these matters? Well, I guess the truth of the matter is that, uh, you know, the you can say that Canada and Newfoundland are, are in no rush to, to settle, because if they were in a rush, we would have settled this a long time ago. Because everything that we had put forward as a as a as an accommodation within Canada and Newfoundland um, boundaries has been, in my view, very very um, um, fair and, and and sensible and 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 workable. And um, and um, <clears throat> like for example, uh, you know, this uh, this morning during the negotiations, we're try we're still trying to figure out, uh, you know, how. <clears throat> how Eno will be accommodated if they're out on the land uh, fishing or hunting uh, uh, animals, and uh, you know whether they will be, uh, you know, you know, carrying uh, uh, license uh, identification, or, 
you know, it's, 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 you know, the conversation sometimes is ridiculous and, and, and governments can afford, you know, ridiculous conversations because they have time and they have money and they've certainly used uh, uh, money as a, as a, as a weapon in many cases, because you're constantly, you know, the, you know, the, they pay for the process and they have lots of time. And they just, you know, keep churning the the wheel, and the and in the meantime, you know, um, you know, the people are waiting to, you know, to have all these outstanding issues resolved. But we should have dealt with this issue a long time ago, you know, 20 years ago. You know, they should have been on no more than 10-year process, and yet 30 years later, and 35 years later, it's still still going on. So it's it's very. Uh, it's uh I mean I'm frustrated with the process as I'm sure uh people on the outside who are looking in uh are and and they don't understand why it's taking so long. But the reason being is that you know, governments have time and governments have money and they don't mind uh, you know, spending the money to turn the you know, the you know, to keep the process moving. You know, you know, in a, at a ridiculous pace. As I said this morning, we were talking about, you know, how are you going to identify, you know, people hunting on their on uh, on, on their lands? Will they be carrying license? Will they be carrying, uh, you know, what's the best way to do this? You know, like uh, uh, can they be charged? Should they be charged? And then, you know, and then come up with the uh, with the with the uh, identifications later on, you know, and then and then change it afterwards like it's it's a really ridiculous arguments that are taking place but again you know like as i said governments have time governments have money they don't they don't really mind uh you know um uh, out uh out working the uh you know the the workers at uh, at our organizations that's my view you know and i think i'm pretty accurate because it, it's the same right across the country Negotiations go on, nothing happens, but people are kept at the table for 30, 40 years and uh, until they're worn out, absolutely, and then hopefully when they're worn out from the government point of view, they'll just sign any, you know, any agreement. And uh, uh, Chris, so, uh, yeah, over 30, 35 years, that's more than a generation. So you have people coming and going. Uh, you know, you got started in this process very young, so you're still at it. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, is there a strategy here? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I think that's 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 the government strategy. Just keep in mind, like, we have a population of uh, 3,000. Uh, when we started in this process, there was our population was uh, around a thousand, you know, and uh, and so half of the population does not doesn't know when you know doesn't wasn't even born when this process started. That's you know that's how uh, how much we've grown over the last uh, thirty years, and um, and so half of the population doesn't know anything about the land claims process. Yeah. So. I think the general public as well. It's been so long, it's not even in people's minds anymore. I think most people would be shocked to learn that the land claims process is still underway and hasn't been resolved. Any hopes that this might be done, you know, in your lifetime or in the next couple of years? Yeah. Well, when the premier came, uh, was elected a couple of years ago, he he made a commitment that he wanted to resolve by March 2024. 
Um, but I think you know, I think he's going he's going to have a hard time. Uh, our time. Uh, well, he's going to be disappointed when he when when March comes around that we still haven't got it resolved because we're still talking about silly, silly, you know, silly, uh, silly. We're still having silly arguments about you know how you know people are going to be identified when they're out hunting and fishing out on the land, and that's what we were doing this morning when we were you know when we were uh, meeting, and that conversation now has been going on for the last for the last year. As a chapter, right? So he'll be uh, pleasantly uh, sh- shocked and surprised when March comes around, and and uh, and um, we're not going to meet his dead. You know, I don't think we're going to meet his deadline. You know, because we're still having silly conversations. And what does this mean for you know things like uh, development of Gull Island, let's say? Because I know the provinces have been talking about that. So, you know, what was what will uh, that mean for me, stuff like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got in, we've got uh, we've dealt with uh, with uh, Muskrat Falls through Impact Benefit Agreement and uh, through Josh Padabin. and uh, but it's been a great disappointment because uh, what uh, what Newfoundland did was, as, as I pointed out earlier, is that they essentially changed the rules on us when they realized that uh, that they um, there was a great uh, over budget and. Uh, I guess um, you know it's over what ten ten billion dollars now. It was originally was scheduled for for you know six six billion as a project, and so the so the cost of that uh, was supposed to be borne by the ratepayers, and the ratepayers were saying no, they're not going to be paying for the amount that's that's that you know that's that's offered to them. So politically, it's a big problem. And what they did was they changed the, the you know they changed the agreement. Along with the federal government using federal funds, and then they to also took a billion dollars from the from the you know that was a, that was agreed to in 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 the uh, in the impact benefit agreement. So we lose a billion dollars over 50 years uh, from uh, you know from Muscat Muscat Falls project. And so you know we're not very uh, Dino are not uh, too excited about uh, Gall Island. That's for sure. So you know if if that's not you know if that's not resolved then you can forget about Gallen you know you know you might as well stop talking about it because it ain't it it isn't going to be happening if Muscat Falls uh, issues are still outstanding. A billion dollars over fifty years. Billion dollars over fifty years. That's how much we lose in the in the in the changes that they made through rate mitigation. Because they brought down the, uh, I think the original price for power for Newfoundland was going to be 24 cents a kilowatt, and with the changes that they made, they brought it down to 14 or 15 cents a kilowatt. And and with the changes that they made, what they did was they used the um, the federal funds through some um, oil funds that would, you know, there were changes there, and plus they took a billion dollars from our share. To 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 offset the cost, and which brought it down to uh, uh, to 15 cents a kilowatt. So it's uh, I mean it's, it's it's nasty what the what the what the government did to the, to us to the Inu people, and uh, and you know I can't really just blame you know uh, Prime uh, Premier Fury, but I, I'd have to blame you know the Prime Minister as well because 
and and, and Seamus because they they were all in on it. You know, they were all in one room making all these decisions and making all the changes and and not involving us or consulting with us and and they just essentially told us what the what the outcome of these of those meetings were and it's it's been you know it's been the, the disastrous for us so all of this talk to, about truth and reconciliation must ring awful hollow uh, well reconciliation I, you know I just you know just throw up when I hear that word reconciliation because it doesn't mean anything to governments, right? They just they just repeatedly use it to to uh, make themselves happy and make uh, make other people feel good about uh, about the relationship with Indigenous people. But it's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing good and sensible happening at that front when you're talking, you know, on on the reconciliation front. It's all words, nothing more. Peter Panashway, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Not a problem. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And Peter Panashway, of course, is a senior land claims negotiator with the Innu Nation. Uh, well, before we go to break, I'm going to tell you about uh, the roads out there. Uh, pretty slick and slippery in around Metro, especially. Uh, caller just um, indicated to us that there's an SUV in the ditch on the uh, the S-turn, you know, the twisty-turny turn there on Mount Sio Road. Uh, the caller says roads are very slick. Drivers should be extremely careful out there, please. Take your time. Be aware that the roads are very slick. Well, coming up, NLC launches a new social responsibility campaign as we head into the busy holiday season. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Work. And we are back. And please be careful on the roads out there. Very slick and slippery with this amount of uh, wet snow that's falling on the eastern portion of the island. Well, the NLC has launched a new awareness campaign to draw attention to the consequences of impaired driving and the impact on those left behind. NLC CEO Bruce Keating joins me now. Well, we're into the holiday season, Bruce Keating. Yes, we are. Absolutely. And I see that NLC has launched a new um, social responsibility awareness campaign, End Impaired Driving. Now, uh, a lot of people would say, okay, you're the NLC. How is that going to work? What are you doing? What we're doing, we launched a uh, campaign on Friday, and that was in consultation with the RCMP and with the RNC as well, who we work with on a regular basis. Uh, But again, very much focused on uh, ending impaired driving. Um, And the campaign, like I say, is based upon some uh, uh, work that our marketing team and our social responsibility team have done. We're really excited about that work. We're really passionate about that work. And, And really, the key message is one that I think in some respects we've heard before, but we need to continue to make progress to deliver, and that is to discourage people from driving impaired and avoiding all of the avoidable tragedies that come with that when people make that, uh, that error in judgment and get behind the wheel. I think, you know, the, the overall culture has changed quite dramatically over the last couple of decades. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think most people do understand the, the dangers of impaired driving, yet we continue to see it happen. So what kind of messages uh, is NLC sending? 
Well, the message we want to send, and I, and I would agree with you, I think the message is, is well understood in some respects. Uh, what we need to make sure is that people are taking the message on board and to continue to work on public education to make sure that happens. I think if we look over the last 10 or 20 years, we've made a lot of progress in terms of highway driving and getting behind vehicles of that nature. But there's also still situations where we see with off-road vehicles, ATVs, um, boats, and snowmobiles, um, where, again, at times it feels like, like I say, a different value set and a different culture exists in those environments. So there's certainly lots of areas that we can make progress on and that we really encourage people to think carefully about before they make that decision of either consuming alcohol or consuming cannabis and getting on a motorized or getting in a motorized vehicle. So how are you getting the message out there? Our team have put together a plan, so it's going to be a combination of things. One is it'll be through uh, our social media platforms, uh, where we'll be promoting it widely uh, during the holiday season. Similarly, it'll be through uh, media placements that we will do as well. And we'll be putting it in all of our uh, corporate stores right across the province as well. And uh, it kicked off on Friday, so that should be out in the stores now, or if not, should be there at any, any time at all. Uh, but we're going to promote that. And we also think, Linda, like I say, we see it as this is something we're launching right now uh, during the holiday season. Uh, but in fact, we've got a series of ads planned uh, that will make it a, a program and a campaign that will run right on through 2024 and beyond. Well, indeed, because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a problem year-round, but it's top of mind this time of season, isn't it? It's very much top of mind, and I think people probably find themselves in more situations this time of year where they're facing that decision. Uh, so part of the reason why it's always a big focus at Christmas time is, the, is to encourage people to make sound decisions when they're consuming. Uh, but at the same time, like I say, it doesn't go away. It's something that's there all year long. And, and for us, like I say, it, it is that point that these tragedies are avoidable. Uh, they're devastating for the children that are left behind, for spouses, for parents, for anybody, like I say, in, in the circle of friends and family. And we really do want people to avoid those tragedies and uh, have a healthy relationship with alcohol or a healthy relationship with cannabis. So how does that work into your, um, you know, your corporate vision, so to speak? Because, you know, the, the idea is to, is to increase, uh, you know, sales and those kinds of things. So how does the social responsibility aspect of that play into all of that? Well, I think from our perspective, the, it's very much about balancing purpose with profit. And, you know, part of our role is to be, and part of our overall mission, is to be a socially responsible retailer. So for us, like I say, those are two parts that fit together. Like I say, we want to be socially responsible, and we want to deliver those messages. Those messages are, are a very, very important part of our business plan, have been, like I say, in past business plans, and it will be uh, growing importance even as we go forward uh, in the years ahead. So it's a very, very big part of what we're about as an organization, and uh, it's something that we want to deliver uh, as we uh, kind of kick off this campaign. And this includes, uh, I mean, traditionally we think of impaired driving as alcohol-related, but this includes cannabis. And, of course, I think a lot of us have been in uh, situations where we've been in traffic and, oh, what's that I smell? Um, so, uh, you know, is this taking in the, those two aspects or are you singling in on cannabis in one type of ad and um, alcohol in another? Uh, it's taking in both, and I think sometimes, again, like I say, as part of the uh, part of the public education, people can 
make the mistake of thinking that cannabis doesn't lead to impairment and doesn't have an effect upon people's ability to drive without being impaired. And that is not the case. So this campaign is very much focused on impairment from beverage alcohol, but equally focused upon impairment as a result of cannabis. Uh, A person can be impaired as a result of either one of those, and this campaign is very much directed towards both of them. Bruce Keating, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda. And Bruce Keating is the CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Liquor Corporation. Well, Sarah, during the uh, the um, commercial break, I uh, darted out to see what it's like out the window, and there is a fair bit of snow down. Mm-hmm. And it's the wet stuff, too. The wet stuff, so it's sticking to everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one, if you're leaving work now, make sure you take the time to brush off the vehicle or warm it up ahead That's of time or whatever thing, the case may be. because a lot of people, that Keep snow holes. holds a lot of weight, mm-hmm. and that if that comes down on your windshield, you're... I did it one time as a very new driver. I haven't done it ever again yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's scary when it comes it is, down yeah. over your windshield especially if you got no control over it uh but i see there's a few slowdowns in and around town oh quite a bit we have of course on the parkway at this moment and uh downtown kenmount road as well anywhere uh that would usually see a slowdown it's a bit more this evening i'm finding because uh, people are taking their time especially it's almost like uh you know they say we forget how to drive when it snows but no we kind of have to like relearn how to adapt to it again absolutely and uh, i know there's still people out there that don't have their snow tires Mm -hmm. on so that's a factor too uh and i know you know sometimes you can push it and other years like this year man snow uh, the winter seems to have really descended on us rather uh, quickly yeah and we thought last week we were getting it but uh there was the mad ra- uh, mad dash to get your snow tires on there last week for that storm that we did not get well i mean you know yay uh we st john's didn't get it but many parts of the province did but um we uh yeah just be aware uh and if you haven't got your snow tires on yet well time to do <laughs> it. Now's time. yeah and there's a lot of shopping that's left to be done and all the the, the like of that so it's busy busy days so um do be careful out there and get home safely that's it for us for today uh, we'll be back tomorrow do join us then thanks for listening everyone